Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, before we get to the pod, I wanted to note we had some tech issues on this episode, mainly because... Even with Sully's great guidance, we are mostly incompetent individuals. So Pete's audio is going to be off a little bit today at points, but we made it through taping. Same great insight. High intelligent conversation, of course. Uh, And we will be back full strength on Thursday. We endeavor to do better. So thank you for sticking with us. Uh, Welcome to the pod. We had football last weekend. Austin P. Central Arkansas. Not surprising. Pete and I are 1-0 with our picks. We knew better. Dan Wetzel knew better. Knew better. He had studied that FCS game big time. Sure. He No, he studied Tap 40, the most reliable force in sports majoring. <laughs> I waited for Pat to pick, and I went the other way. <laughs> Listen. I went to UMass. I'm well aware of what crappy half-ass college football looks like, and I knew Central <laughs> Arkansas was a little better at it than Austin B. Now, it was actually a fun game. I mean, the opening touchdown, I mean, it was great. It was, uh, I was really glad. It was yeah. uh, just a fun, exciting game, and and the idea that these two teams got that much attention, just awesome. It's hilarious. I never saw ratings for it, but it, it had to be like one of the highest-rated FCS games ever, right? I bet it crushed the FCS title game from last year. I'm sure it had to. It's got to be the highest-rated FCS game. Yeah, it was It, it was good. Yeah. It was good. Well, we'll get to college football. I want to start with basketball. We had a uh, weekend uh, losing a couple of Hall of Famers, all-time greats. Lute Olson, a coach at uh, Iowa, and then Arizona won the 97 National Championship, four Final Fours, really cemented and built just a powerhouse in, uh, in Tucson, impeccably dressed, the hair, just a, just, a, just a presence, right? Man, that guy, Midnight Lute, hailed from North Dakota and was that classy, right? Like, just, <laughs> you never know. Passed away, and uh, obviously he was a, you know, great memory. That 97 championship team was uh, was a lot of fun. They beat three number one seeds, kind of got their act together during the uh, the tournament and and was one of his, you know, one of his great teams. And then, uh, you know, John Thompson Jr., the, the legendary Georgetown coach, who's, I think, presence just far beyond even his great accomplishments as a coach. He also won two NBA titles as a player for the Celtics, a great player at Providence College. And then, uh, was the first African-American coach to win a national title in 1984 with Georgetown. Three Final Fours really helped build the Big East. Uh, incredible presence. Coached all these great 
Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo, Alonzo Mourning, just a, a, a slew of guys. Hoya paranoia was like nothing else. Uh, certainly for someone growing up who loved college basketball in the Northeast, uh, Georgetown was just massive. And John Thompson and that big he's six foot ten, he had the towel over the shoulder and his teams were just just vicious. They used to joke like the offensive rebound was their best offensive play. Just throw it up there. And when these guys get it, you know, uh, just just phenomenal. So. Uh, and obviously, he he was decades ahead of his time in in arguing many many things about uh, race, social justice, fairness, and different things in college basketball. It, you know, for a large part, become conventional wisdom or agreed upon uh, things. Uh, and he had to do it while taking a lot of uh, a lot of darts and a lot of hate, made a lot of people uncomfortable, and didn't care ton of respect for for John Thompson. Absolutely. Mount Rushmore figure in uh, college basketball history. If you can only put four faces on the mountain, he's one of them. And that means that if you're also going to put John wow. Wooden up there, but that means somebody between Mike Krzyzewski, Dean Smith, and Bobby Knight isn't getting on the mountain. But I'd still say he's got to be on there. College basketball needed him in the worst way when he left D.C. and coaching high school basketball in 1972, and nobody knew he was a big deal then, and Georgetown basketball certainly wasn't a big deal. But by the end of the 70s, they were going to the NCAA tournament every year, and then he got Patrick Ewing, and for four years, they were the best program in college basketball. They went to three championship games. They won one of them. They lost the other two, won them by one point on a shot by a guy named Michael Jordan. The other one by two points to a Villanova team that shot 78% from the field. They easily could have won three titles in four years. He was the first black coach, as you said, to win a national championship. He did it without any apology, brusque, caustic, tough, knocked through the front door. I mean, this wasn't a guy who came in playing nice or anything like that. I was like, no, we're going to do it my way, and my way is going to be tough, and we're going to be mean at times. The thing that just blew me away in that championship game against North Carolina. First of all, it was the, the biggest stage college basketball had ever had at that point. First time they had played in a football stadium in the Superdome. And they set it up to seat like 64,000 or whatever. Georgetown's never been anywhere near this in the lifetime of any of those players. They go out there in these uniforms that look like they cost $1.80 each with the nameplate stitched on the back by a manager or something. I mean, they... They looked like a, a rummy program. And Patrick Ewing goaltends the first four baskets for North Carolina. John Thompson told him, said, do not let anything get to the rim. So he just starts goaltending James Worthy, goaltending Michael Jordan. Uh, just this incredible show of we are not here to mess around. And they damn near won that game. And it just launched an incredible era. Uh, Georgetown, as you said, Dan, growing up, I mean, if you loved college basketball in the 80s, especially from an urban standpoint, Georgetown was the school. Everybody had Georgetown swag. Everybody wanted to wear Nikes because of Georgetown. Profound influence by him. I, I uh, can't say enough about his impact on college hoops. The Georgetown starter jacket, man, that yeah. thing was hot. <laughs> Everybody wanted the Syracuse had their run there too. St. John, I mean, the Big East was Big it, East it, was huge. It, it, the Big East at the t when I was growing up in Boston, I mean, it was as, it was practically as big as the NBA, and they had the ball. I mean, that's what the Boston Celtics were. Winning. I mean, it was just Monday night was like 
every kid at school yeah. watched the Big East. Seven o'clock, man. And it was so yeah. Thompson. These figures were all incredible, right? Bayheim's still going. Incredible. But, you know, Cardaseca, yeah. Thompson, uh, Patino was in it for a while. Massimino. Uh, it's just every and they just play each other. But above and beyond, Thompson was a figure. People loved him. They hated him. They were terrified. Of, it was just yeah. just phenomenal. But, yeah, the starter jacket alone could put him <laughs> on Mount Rushmore. That is an incredible. <laughs> the Mount Rushmore of coaches. Fascinating. Fascinating yep. there. We have to do that another time if we get some slow yeah. time. But uh, Pete, what do you think? Well, you know, I called around uh, this morning to a whole bunch of uh, different folks who, who John Thompson crossed paths with over the years coaching. And, it, you know, everybody from Rick Patino to Mike Trangisi to Shaka Smart. And, and here's what stood out to me. Like, you could write entire columns on, like, the facets of his legacy, right? Just on, you mentioned the impact on the Big East. Like, I, I, I knew but had forgotten. That was the first Big East team to win a title. So he had always expressed to uh, Dave Gabbett how much it meant to him. Dave was an assistant coach at Providence when John was a player. And so that relationship went all the way back. So, like, just the Big East part of John Thompson is its own, like, distinct, profound legacy. You have the impact, impact on Georgetown as a school and basketball in Washington, D.C., there's there's obviously the cultural cultural impact with the Nikes and the in the starter jacket and everything like that. Georgetown became a brand. It became this living, breathing, teeming thing. And then obviously, you know, he's the first African American coach to win a national title. He had a just spectacular and profound legacy on African American coaches, generations of African American coaches. And and then I just went back and, and read the front page Washington Post story from nineteen eighty nine when he walked off the court protest proposition 42 like that that alone in a nutshell what Trangisi said to me this morning and he, and he said it more eloquently than i'm going to paraphrase him here but you know he when he did that he walked alone he wasn't this wasn't like what we saw with the nba where if this is 30 years ago radically different racial dynamics in america a lot to risk and he he walked out by him uh, by himself you know a, a true pioneer with with just just an intense intense legacy that really is uh, you know I, I'm writing a column this afternoon trying to put it all in perspective it's it, it's it's daunting to try to wrap everything in intense is a great word for it it was a, it was a, he was a very intense coach his teams played intensely people reacted intensely but a couple other things too as far as pioneering and changing things the Big East is always the Big East tournament's always been associated with Madison Square Garden right. Well, it didn't get there until Patrick Ewing's junior year. That's what made elevated the Big East profile. Patrick Ewing and Georgetown to the point like, okay, we can go to New York City and we can go to the biggest stage. Before that, you know, they're in the Hartford Civic Center. They're in the Capitol Center. It was when Ewing was a junior that they got into Madison Square. Secondly, Thompson starts winning big in the 70s, late 70s, goes to the Final Four in 82. Well, guess what happens? John Chaney gets a big job in 1982. George Raveling gets Iowa in 1983. Nolan Richardson gets Arkansas in 1985. If he doesn't have that success, I'm not sure those doors open for those other great African-American coaches. He had the entire, uh, an, an entire race of coaches counting on him. Absolutely. Yeah, that's you, a great way to put you it. You can't, and you can't just win and have, not just win, but you can't have scandal because... The idea was, well, they can't, they can't discipline. They, you know, there's always some reason you can't possibly be in charge. And he, 
one of his things was we're, you're coming to Georgetown and you're going to act like you're from George. You are going to graduate. You are going to do well academically. You are going to conduct yourselves. He was relentless, like you can't drink in the door. I mean, just he was all over it. Walk across campus and talk to people. Uh, he he had little things he told. You know, I wrote the book with Alonzo Mourning, uh, Alonzo Mourning's autobiography, Resilience. And I'm forgetting the, the detail now, uh, but it, what, what the news item was. But he walked in early on freshman year or something like that, and he said, hey, does anyone know what happened this morning? And somebody, there was some political controversy it hit. Don't It doesn't really matter. And nobody knew the answer. And he just cussed them out for 30 minutes for being everything they think you are. You're not aware. The damn newspaper is sold all over this thing. And if you don't read that paper, the Washington Post, every single day, you're not a Georgetown guy, right? All over them. And they all started buying the paper. And because he'd come in, that what what's going on today? What happened today, right? Little stuff like that. I spent 30 minutes not even practicing. And it was like, we're going to make you aware. We're going to do this stuff the right way. Because if you didn't, you're right. Those guys didn't. And not enough guys got opportunities. And you'd call everyone out for that. But and that's yeah. what he made people uncomfortable. But he was so unbelievable. He was a terrifying, like, he, he just was a terrifying guy. In writing that book, I'll tell one other Alonzo story. It's pretty funny. I'll tell one more after that, baby. But so I'm going to get to talk to John Thompson for the Alonzo morning. Alonzo's like, you know, I need Coach Thompson's voice in this book and all that. And he does not do media. So we set up like an hour. You get a, an hour on the phone with John Thompson. Like, it takes Alonzo morning to get the hour. <laughs> and even then, he wasn't real happy about talking to me for a whole hour. But he did it. Alonzo gives me a list of questions. I got some things I got to fill in the book. But he's got like these. Some of these things are like stupid. They're like, why'd you pull me in the second? Why'd you pull Alonzo in the second half of the pit game? What? What was and I go, I go, so now, I mean, Lonzo, this is Lonzo Morning himself is like one of the toughest people you will ever meet in your life. Yeah. Talk about he's terrifying. He's a friend of mine, but he's terrifying himself. OK, I go, why don't you ask him that question? I'm not going to waste an hour. on. He's like, I'm, ter- I'm not going to ask him. I, 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 uh, he's still scared of him. I'm like, dude, you have an NBA title. You got like uh, millions of dollars. You survived a kidney transplant. You're scared of him. You're like 40 years old. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not asking coach that. You got to ask him about this time in prep. So half the questions didn't even make the book, but Alonzo got, you know, I was like, oh, this is crazy. They're so scared of him. So that was him, That's man. He could, and I'll, I'll tell the one other that I led in the story. This to me is the most amazing John Thompson story ever. There's a guy named uh, Rafel uh, Edmund. Rafel Edmund was the drug kingpin of Washington, D.C. in the late 1980s. So only about 24 years old. Pete, I know you just watched The Wire. He was Avon Barksdale and then some. They talked about $300 million a year in in, in product he was selling. Okay? Rafael Edmond wow. was a good basketball player, but, you know, had gotten into this and was ruthless. Dozens of murders. Every, every bit the worst drug dealer, trafficker in the country. He had one of these playground basketball teams, which is kind of a thing they do in, in the DMV. And the summer... You get you get these you get former pros, college stuff, whatever, and playground guys, and you try to form these teams, and they have these little or they did at the time. They'd have these games, people crowding around a park, watching games, betting on it, all this stuff. So Rafel gets in on um, on the Georgetown guys. John Turner, JT was 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 from DC and knew him growing up, and he gets Alonzo on the team, and they got the two of them are hanging out. 
with the biggest drug kingpin in Washington, and this is not good. Now, those guys weren't breaking any laws. Believe me, there was a massive federal investigation of this, but they're playing on the team, and they're hanging out. And Zoe said, it's like this cool guy. He's got money. I was an idiot. I was 18. I had grown up in foster care, and all of a sudden, the world opened up for me. I'm in the big city. And and Thompson was away that summer with the Olympics. It was 84, I think, or, or 88. Maybe it was 88. 88. 88. The Olympics. Yeah. 88, yeah. That fall, he comes back, and the DEA... This is how big John Thompson was and how respected he was in Washington, D.C. DEA agent comes to him and says, two of your players are hanging out with Rafael Edmond, and we're, we have an investigation going on him. Biggest drug kingpin. He doesn't know who the guy is, right? Biggest drug pin in town. This has got to break every protocol of a federal investigation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Coach, uh, yeah. Co- Coach says, all right. So he brings the two guys in. They sit down individually. He brings the DEA. He says, come back. I want you to tell them. So the DEA guys tell Alonzo Mourning, John Turner, this is what, who you're hanging around with. This guy does this. It, they they, they kind of grill them. They realize, like, we don't do any, we don't know about the drugs, anything. We don't know what the hell's going on, right? Scares the hell out of them and leaves, right? Again, has to break all federal protocols. They're willing to do this for John Thompson. John Thompson then tells these guys, "You're, I mean, uh, I'm going to throw you out of school, whatever. I mean, this is just absolutely, you, we cannot be doing this. He then puts word out on the street, which is, I, I, I asked him and he never, he didn't tell me, I don't know if he's ever said exactly how he got quote unquote word on the street, that he wanted Rafael Edmond to come visit him at the office. The biggest drug trafficker and a guy with <laughs> dozens of murders, two days later, shows up at the Georgetown <laughs> basketball office and sits in front of John Thompson, who then tells him, you stay the F away from my players. And not only that, these two do not get any, there's no, because they're scared. Like, you can't just, you can't just leave a guy like that. Like, I don't return your call anymore. And I like a guy like that. Like, these guys get no, and and Rafael Edmond, who later for his trial had one witness shot and another house (laughs) firebombed, okay, agrees with what John Thompson says and never touches another Georgetown basketball player. Now, can you imagine any other person, let alone a college basketball coach, who can call the DEA and say, you come to me, and then I'm going to go to the biggest drug yeah. came in, and you come to me, and everyone does what I say, and the situation is diffused. That, now that is respect, man. That is that's, unbelievable. That's juice. That's juice right there. That I had, I had heard a story that that he actually, that Thompson got in the car and went driving looking for Rafael, like was just going to go confront him on the street and didn't find him. And that's when he put out word. Yeah, you, you come to my uh, That might be. Either, either yeah. way. Well, either way, it's like, wow. Talk about taking serious matters into your own hands. Yeah. And getting results. We all talked uh, kind of before we started the pod today, we were just standing around and they're probably between the three of us in the, the half century plus we've all collectively covered college basketball. There aren't a lot of like, Figures in the games we don't know. We haven't sat in bleachers with, talked with, have some sort of personal relationship with. But like, we were kind of like, none of us really knew John Thompson on a personal level. We all interviewed him and talked to him and everything like that. And so I, I think one of the advantages of the pod, and what I think people like to listen to, is like when we we talk about these people, like you know, regular folks. Like, hey, this is how I knew him. There's a funny story. Here's anything like that. I don't have anything like that about John Thompson just from from running across him and sporadically interviewing him over the years. But I will say this. I have one just searing memory of John Thompson. It's Syracuse, Georgetown. I want to say 1996. It's Allen Iverson's 
lone year there. They come to the Carrier Dome in uh, in, in January. I want to say Donovan McNabb actually came off the bench and helped Syracuse basketball win that game. It was a long time ago. Anyway, so I'm covering it. I'm 18 or 19, working for the Daily Orange. I'm freshman or sophomore in college. I'm, you know, I don't know what I don't know. And, um, you know, in the crowded little uh, press conference room after the game, John Thompson walks in. And I had never seen John Thompson up close in person. I was like viscerally <laughs> struck. He walks in. I was like, I'm not asking him any questions. He was just a <laughs> giant, intimidating guy. That, and and I, I, I bring that story up because I'd be curious what your impressions were, were of him in person when you run across. It was like, that was a no-nonsense I believe Georgetown lost that game. If I come, yes, they did lose that game. So he was in no mood, no business. Now look, like we've all been around intimidating coaches. Jim Beheim, quite frankly, pretty intimidating, especially when I was that age. You know, there's a lot of intimidating guys. No, I have never been around a coach in a press conference room. It's like nobody wanted to ask anything. It was just like, wow, okay. Yeah, it's like, it's like <laughs> coach, your thoughts on the game, right? You can't yell yeah. at me for that, right? Get out of the way. <laughs> yep. I didn't. I didn't say yeah. anything. Maybe you liked it. I don't know your assessment of tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Get, there you go. Now Bob Knight no. was terrifying because he was he, he right. could fly off the handle and go bananas at any moment, and so that was a little scary. But it's almost like it was like theater. Like you felt like if you did wrong right. on Thompson, you were disappointing him, and and it, you just, <laughs> you, just, you know like it's just like yeah, night night spouts yeah. off. But man, yeah, Thompson carried himself just serious. It was like, all right, this is oh, like yeah. no other coach. Even Belichick, I mean, you know, no, not like that. Parcells, no. Yeah. That's, I mean, he literally 6'10, 280 or whatever, uh, you know, and that's in very, the gruff exterior, he, he, that was his shield that he wore right into, you know, when he was marching up against people. And <laughs> Mike Wilbon one time told me that if he liked you, he called you an MFer. <laughs> uh, if he didn't like, he probably called you that too. But I mean, that's, he, he was a profane dude and he suffered no fools and just the sheer size of him. Uh, he, he, there was a gravitas that, uh, that kind of preceded him wherever he went. It was funny. I'd say my one personal anecdote really with, with him, uh, was I was the president of the USBWA, the U S basketball writers association when, we started the Dean Smith Award in 2015 to give to one person who, like Dean Smith, had a profound impact beyond being a really good coach. And the first winner was a slam dunk, no doubt, John Thompson, because Dean Smith loved John Thompson and vice versa. Those guys were very close friends, and I think uh, both respected each other immensely. And I remember when Thompson got there, they were, the banquet was in Chapel Hill. And I had to give him the award. And I'm, I'm like, I'm nervous. Do not screw this up because he's in his 70s, but it doesn't matter. It's still John Thompson. And, uh, I, you know, we got it. I gave it to him and everything. And he said, you hit me in the soft spot. I was like, oh, my gosh, John Thompson has a soft spot. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I remember he drove down to Dean Smith's retirement press conference. I remember that was a big thing. Hmm. Like, John Thompson... Yeah, you know, went to that and had a lot of respect for Dean Smith, and yeah, vice versa. Well, uh, you know, incredible guy. And like I said, I, I I like those guys that there's no, you know, he didn't, he never courted the media, which is fine. You know, make us be yeah. better, make us do our job. Yeah. I didn't care. You know, it's 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 no problem. He he challenged uh, he challenged us, and and I know as a young guy, as a as a kid growing up watching him. 
like the things he would say would make you think. And I, you're just a college, ba- you know, I, I'm watching because I want to see them dunk. And, you know, like I want to see Patrick Ewing block a shot or, or, you know, these things. But there he is taking on serious issues. And that, that Prop 42 that he protested, he walked out of. At that time, if you did not, you failed to qualify academically, the school was not allowed to give you a scholarship. You had to pay your own way for one yeah. year. That, Terrible. That was the Terrible rule, rule, which he a, yeah. a, 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 quite, uh, you know, clearly pointed out is completely unfair to people who aren't rich. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, what better thing can we do for you than bring you into college, work with you, and help you get your scholarship while you don't play? Like, yeah. that's what he was arguing. And he was the only damn coach who even walked out on this. I mean, this isn't right. even this is not controversial anymore. But back then it was controversial. So the NCA leadership literally thought this was a good idea. And and, you know, so some of the stuff he was pointing out and I think people, oh, he was really, you know, pushing stuff. What was he pushing? Like, come on. That's just that's just common sense. Think about how many kids came into college not academically ready, often because they came from schools that that couldn't educate them very well. Um, this was before, you know, every kid took off for a for a prep school where magically everyone gets, uh, you know, <laughs> qualified. I don't have a problem with that at all. But, you know, this was back when if you were from, you know, you were from Lincoln, you're from Brooklyn, you're going to Lincoln or you're going to Grady, you know, and that was it. And you, you weren't just bailing out. So it, it just was a it just was a, a, you know, such a simple thing that he fought for. But that was the kind of fights he had to have back then i I really was fascinated diving down the 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 rabbit hole of january 5th 1989 when he uh when he when he walked out of that game it was against uh it's against boston college which means you probably remember a little better dan because i would think you were in uh you were were watching um you and your uh you and your pops who's a hardcore uh college basketball uh fan too and uh I spoke to, to to Mike Jones, who's the head coach at Samantha Catholic today, who was kind of a child of that era. He's a little in our age range. Uh, Mike Jones ended up taking over for, for Morgan Wooten at uh, at Samantha. And he said when that happened in high school, like that struck him. You know, he's like someone who looked like me, someone who coached, which I wanted to do that happening. Like he really took that as a as a seminal, uh, seminal moment. But I mean, it struck me that, you know, Sunday, Washington Post, A1. So now. The front page of the Washington Post and New York Times are still a very big deal, but you could argue a generation ago, you know, without 24-hour cable news, without social media, without sort of the instant media we're in, that's the biggest megaphone, right? So if he if he did that on a Saturday game against BC and it was on the front page of the Washington Post, that that obviously just has a huge, huge ripple effect. And so this is what John Thompson uh, said at the time. It was to Steve Berkowitz. I've done this because out of frustration, you're limited in your options of what you can do in response to something I felt was very wrong. Thompson said two hours before the game, this is my way of bringing attention to a rule a lot of people were not aware of, one of which will affect a great many individuals. I did it to bring attention to the issue to hopes of getting the NCAA to take another look at what they've done and if they feel it's unjust to change the rule. And it was it, it was kind of a cool scene that he basically the game uh, as his players warmed up he paced in front of Georgetown's bench his face devoid of expression security scurried about plotting the logistics of his getaway and informing athletic director Frank Rienzo of the late breaking details when the moment came and introductions were complete he whirled around flipped his towel to his assistant 
and there was an idling sedan in the arena and he just like walked out like what a what a powerful what a powerful scene like that's you know just just incredible that's amazing yeah that's a great yeah. man and, a, and obviously a great coach pretty pretty incredible all right college football so we had a we had a game we got some more coming this weekend we'll deal with later in the week well you know a little bit more of a a slate of games, not just a single game. Things are progressing in some ways. And Notre Dame is going to allow 20% of a capacity, they announced. Priority given to students. They're going to, so 20% of, said about 17,000 something. I don't know what capacity Notre Dame Stadium is, but 17,000 maybe. Fans into Notre Dame Stadium. So that that's interesting. No tailgating at Notre Dame, but that's a school... Not in the South, where I think we've seen a little bit more of the interest. Uh, obviously, Indiana is allowing it, so they're going to do that. Uh, again, I think just it's going to be classic if, if Notre Dame is playing football in the middle of the heart of the Big Ten and all these Big Ten schools are looking on in, in wistfulness of like, uh, you know, Notre Dame fan just rubbing in, the, in, the, in the, the wounds of every other Big Ten fan in some office in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I got on the game this weekend. What do you guys? Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I hope that January thing works out. But not all is 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 fantastic. Auburn uh, announced they haven't practiced uh, in a in a few days. Uh, I think they're going to get back to it on Tuesday. Uh, they had 16 players down for coronavirus related issues, either testing positive or need for quarantine. I think was it Oklahoma lost their offensive line. Also, was that Oklahoma? Oklahoma and LSU both lost position groups. I'm not sure if they identified okay. them, did they? Maybe. Whatever. It is not game week. So, you know, here yeah. we are. Uh, these things are going to happen. I think we're all aware of it. I think this is the challenge, though. If it was game week, can you play? How many offensive linemen do you need? More than four. Uh, <laughs> you know, do you make all your tight ends? I mean, how do you do this? Can you play? Do you do you postpone? Do you? I, I don't know what the the policy is do we have written policies on these types of things because you know hopefully all the auburn kids will be fine and uh and and this is going to be too serious and they'll all be back but what what happens if this is in two weeks and i think that's a that's going to be a a challenge we may be trying to play football we just may not be able to quite do it the way you know a little bit the way baseball struggled for a while what do, what do we know on this pete well, what we know is that we don't know, Dan. And I really think this is going to be a fascinating, like, ethical Rorschach test for coaches as the season goes on. Because there's going to be two possible scenarios. One is games you just don't want to play. And you then become more liberal in your quarantine reporting. And look, this is happening. Coaches are thinking about it, petrified of it, paranoid of it, whatever you want to say. You know, the same group of coaches who have done gamesmanship with recruiting rules and, and those types of things over the years. There will be gamesmanship with, uh, with, with contact tracing protocol. I guarantee it. If you don't want to play team X, you can, you can make, uh, Hey, weren't you around him when you, when you tested positive in, in that? And if you do want to play game X, like, like, I really hope that everyone has someone from the outside handling their contact tracing because these coaches are going to be very, especially conference only schedules. So, you know, if you're not very good team, Instead of going five and seven, you're going to go two and eight, which there's a big difference recruiting wise, all that stuff. And just like if you are a good team, oh, all of a sudden you don't have your starting quarterback or quarterbacks, starting quarterback tailback. And you don't want to run the wildcat against, you know, some metaphorical LSU that weekend. 
I, I just really think we are going to see a lot of gamesmanship through, throughout this, a lot of complaining, a lot of off-the-record complaining, and probably you can notch the word complaining up to, to, a, different, uh, to a different term there. Um, I really think that <laughs> with, without... So there's been conversations in leagues and the Football Oversight Committee, and I've had a, a bunch of conversations with ADs and coaches about this, but here, here's the thing. If you lose, you know, it's hard to say if you have X players you can play because if you don't have your offensive line, you really can't play and be healthy. Does Clemson want to risk Trevor Lawrence with two converted tight ends playing guard against, you know, Notre Dame's defense? Like, these are the kinds of scenarios that are going to happen. And, you know, this is it. I think Peter King was the first person to write this, and somebody's written many versions of it. This is going to be just, we just have to embrace this being the weirdest, strangest, most surreal season ever. Um, and he wrote that about the NFL. Um, but I really think in college is really where it's manifesting itself right now. Cause like, look at Austin P didn't have their long snapper the other night. That dude was sailing balls. Like he was sailing ball. That's the only reason I lost the bet. They have one good offensive play all night. It was the first one. It was tied with 35 seconds left in the game. Don't tell me like this was some mismatch. Give me a break. Oh, if they had the long beats. snapper. Bad if they beats. have the long snapper, they cover. They at least cover, which is the whole point. I'm afraid that if I asked you your unfiltered opinions of Jeremiah Oatsfall right now, we'd have to bleep out <laughs> the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not, not going after the young man by name. He did score the tying touchdown. Yes. Leave yeah. him alone. That's salty. Of course. Kidding me? Look, it, it's got to be like baseball where they just uh, – you. Uh, I, I wrote a column about the NFL in this. I don't know how college football does because you can't sign more players. But you, you, I agree with you, Pete. You guys just have to embrace the weird and know this isn't going to work how we have it laid out. That doesn't mean we just give up. Now, if this isn't safe, if if this is, you know, there's a million things can happen that, that you give up. That's fine. But don't give up. And I don't think anyone is just because, well, we can't play that game, but maybe we'll be back and be. You're just going to have to embrace that This isn't going to work, but it has to work. And so until there's total, just, it's just way too much. Keep going. It's like, you're go, how do you get through hell? You keep going, you know, or how do you go through hell? You keep going. Uh, Cause it's just going to be nuts. And don't not place a bet on a team until one minute before the damn kickoff, <laughs> then go on your bet MGM and, and, and put your wager. Like you're crazy. If you're betting on a Tuesday. Ross Dellinger from our place at Sports Illustrated had a story today on Monday talking about a Big 12 model that has said, basically, you have to have at least 53 total players with a potential breakdown of like at least one quarterback, six offensive linemen, six defensive linemen, two or three receivers. Apparently, the average team uses anywhere from 45 to 65 players a game. So 53 kind of splits the difference about on that. 53 is also the NFL active roster number. So you can see where that comes from. But I mean, look, you, you, you can have guys that play multiple positions. You could, you could fudge numbers. You can do a lot of things, as Pete alleged or alluded to. This is going to be a very, very messy, inexact, and probably dishonest process at various times as we go through it. I have a story that I'm going to do later this week, Thursday, for the opener uh, on Yahoo. But like, there's going to be some bad ball. I, I probably talked to talked or texted like 30 coaches. Some said they don't think the product will be dramatically effective. The one thing that I thought was interesting was a couple coaches have told me their teams just aren't in shape right now to play, like to practice. Like, they can't practice the normal length they would do. And they all use those like GPS trackers to, to get like the mile per hours. And like, they just show the players are exhausted. They're not in shape. The, the lack of spring, like 
football is like a gradual buildup. It, it, there's there's nothing quite like it in, in sports, getting in like real actual football shape. When you go into fourth quarter games, it's going to be the Hunger Games now. Like Because you're going to have two teams that are tired. They're not in shape. You're going to have injuries. There's going to be more soft tissue because guys aren't in shape. I, it, and I just really think that the, the things that will be affected the most, according to the coaches I talked to, are tackling, offensive rhythm, especially the pass game. It takes the pass game the longest to to really develop some of that synchronicity that's necessary, especially the way modern uh, modern football is played. And uh, very prescient, quite a few coaches mentioned specialty. That you know the special teams were uh, not Central Arkansas field goal unit. I may add they were they were on point the other day. <laughs> but yes, it's the snapping and the punting. Uh, I was talking to Luke Fickle yesterday, and he was like. As a coach, you're always freaked out about your punt game in game one, right? Any year, good years, you're always freaked out about that. But with the with the lack of with the lack of reps, um, you know the, those types of exchanges, and, and you're just having to give more reps to a your backup long snapper, which you would barely ever do beforehand. So just you know, I, I'm not knocking it by saying be prepared for some sloppy. Because look, I. Pat, uh, Pat Sully and I group texted for basically four straight hours on Saturday night about the Austin P game, and we enjoyed every millisecond of it, uh, especially the final result. But the, uh, you know, but the reality is, it is going to be a lower quality ball that we see this year than uh, than we normally see. NFL too, no games. Oh yeah, like you're walking oh, yeah. in like people are used to. You know, everyone hates the preseason in the NFL. Well, you're not going to hate it on week one. You're going to be like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's, yeah. I don't recall Patrick Mahomes overthrowing a guy by 15 yards before. I hadn't <laughs> seen that. Yeah, it's, it's going to be false starts, non, you know, uh, pass yeah. interference, all of that. You know what? That's all right. We'll take it. We'll take it. We're not getting perfect this year. Let's just get progress, get going. All right. Late last week, there was this, uh, you know, seemed like there was this wave of stories. that The Big Ten was trying to reverse and come back sooner and maybe Thanksgiving and maybe January or maybe uh, post-Super Bowl. Thanksgiving seemed to get the the big action. Uh, I checked around. I think you did two, Pete, and I'm sure Pat did, but that didn't. Thanksgiving did not seem very likely to what I had heard. Everyone was saying, well, it's it's a possibility, but I'd be stunned if we're doing anything before 2021. So uh, was that just an overblown kind of social media, everyone getting excited and yelling at each other? Or was there anything there? I heard otherwise, but I'm, I'm willing to be wrong. You know, how how likely is January? Can we get your Rose Bowl, Michigan, Ohio State idea going? I don't know. So I really think it was discussed by coaches, but we've got to remember that this sort of moment we're in right now, Dylan, with COVID is, is a lot like the last time I saw this was like college realignment In realignment. The coaches knew the least, the ADs didn't know much. And it was all presidents and TV executives here. It's really just presidents. And I fully and firmly believe that there are many big 10 coaches who want to start as soon as possible. And from what I heard in the, in the coach discussions, it's really being led by James Franklin, Ryan day, Scott Frost, Paul Christ. And there's a, Oh, Jim Harbaugh. There's a, so those are also four of the five coaches that have the best rosters. So if you have a great roster and you are trying to keep NFL players on campus, you are going to discuss that. And you are probably knowing where fan sentiment is. Probably let that trickle out into the media because fan sentiment is going to be a hundred percent behind. We all know where the fan sentiment is, right? Like from Nebraska to Columbus, to Ann Arbor, the fan sentiment is very clearly behind playing, playing as soon as possible. So I just really think when, when I made calls, the gap between coach discussion and presidential reality is a significant one. The one thing that made me think it had like an inkling of a chance is that TV is fairly interested in it. And it's basically 
20% more inventory if they do it then. And like, you know, basically like, would you want a 20% raise? Like, yes. So would, would you want 20% more money? That would be a factor. But the presidents who made this decision would have to sit there and say, how can we rationalize this as opposed to, you know, what we decided a few months ago? And that would be some, uh, that would be some pretty thorny options. And like later that day, Northwestern announced they weren't going to have students on campus. And I think one thing to remember when we're analyzing the Big Ten is this isn't like a like a rule on like where the you know the, the dumb stuff conferences usually discuss, like where the conference title game is going to be or like the, the, the kinds of rules that usually get people hot and bothered, like satellite camps or something like not Like this is a bigger picture health and safety issue at the presidential level. And the emotion and whims of coaches is probably not going to significantly impact it because if it had, it probably already would. Have. Yeah, the, this is again the like to me, this has just been mystifying the ongoing refusal of people in the Big Ten to accept the reality that's in front of them. And quite frankly, if I were a school president now, I'd be going to my football coach and saying, would you shut up? Would you stop leaking every single possible scenario we're talking about to the media so that then they can blast out to the fans so the fans can get irrationally mad all over again? I mean, this is just, it, it is unbelievable to me. Everybody has said the decision is not going to be revisited to play in the fall. Now, okay, maybe Thanksgiving isn't quite technically the fall or whatever, and you could start then, and I there were some coaches, not even, I mean, I don't even know how many, but I mean, the amount of misinformation that started getting out there on Friday about a coach's meeting, and it's a real possibility they could play Thanksgiving, play in the fall, no, no, and no. First of all, there was a call that didn't even have all the coaches on it. And then, yes, there's a Thanksgiving proposal. I don't think it's going to get legs. I think January has the most legs. Uh, other start dates in the winter using indoor stadiums. But the inability or refusal, really, of everyone to even – try to get on the same page. I think it's just embarrassing for everyone in the Big Ten. It's embarrassing for the office. It's embarrassing for each of the league presidents. It's embarrassing for the ADs. And it's embarrassing for the coaches who keep stoking this. It's like, just be quiet, man. I'm sure they're all very upset. They want their way. They're used to getting their way. They're not getting their way. Some of them with very good teams. But I'm sorry. This is the reality of America here. A lot of people aren't getting their way about a lot of stuff this fall. That's it. Deal with it. So, Pat, did you think something was embarrassing? I didn't quite get the test. <laughs> <laughs> they, I think they would be better off if they just embraced the January route and was like yeah. all in on trying to sell for that and be prepared for that. I don't know whether they, they're hearing it on recruiting. I always think that's the, the key. You know, it's going to hurt them in December recruiting or whatever. They're just missing out on all the fun. But I, I kind of agree. It just it makes the league look it makes the league look like they're re. re you know, reconsidering. And and again, a coach's meeting, that's not that's not the presidents and the board of trustees no. out there. It's just a totally no. different ball game. So and and I think January football would be would be great. I, I think I think their system isn't that like I don't think that's that bad of a, 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 ideally you're playing now. Absolutely. I don't know whether waiting is going to help. I think you probably were better off starting earlier, if anything. If you sit there and say, hey, we're going to give this January thing a try we're going to play then, then that, uh, I think they could turn that into some kind of positive, but I think, I think January, February, whatever, February, March football, even if it's not the best version of the big 10, uh, I don't think they're going to get the best version of anything. 
uh, could be a lot of fun and could be uh, mm-hmm. pretty good for the Big Ten to kind of seize their their deal. All right, let's let's switch to something that uh, that impacts all of us, and that of course is the animal uprisings in this country trying to take <laughs> us down. There you as go. Humans reports of two different animal animals on the loose. Okay, they they made a break from captivity and trying to roam out there on their own. We just can't have that. <laughs> we have to dominate. Uh, one is a classic story. Uh, this is from uh, Cheatham County, Tennessee, uh, Ashland City, Tennessee. Uh, Sully, you familiar with Ashland City, Tennessee? I am not. I was just really? looking it up. It looks like it's northwest of Nashville. That is not my part of the state. Ashland City has 4,000 residents. I think they're using the term city kind of liberally. Yeah, uh, maybe it. more of a, a hamlet. Hamlet. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Ashland City, I'm sure it's beautiful, beautiful area. They had a, an animal break, but it has been done. A 150-pound African tortoise, Sulcata mm. tortoise, broke free uh, <laughs> and was on the loose for 74 days. 74 days. But it being a tortoise, it only made it <laughs> one mile away. <laughs> <laughs> A mile in 74 days. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, his owner uh, told a man and a son uh, found it as wandering uh, by the Cheatham Dam Road, uh, nearly a mile from his house and grazing in a valley. Uh, and so he went and got him. So not I got to say, it's not a hop, it's not a kangaroo, man. The, the tortoise no. tried its best, but just couldn't get there uh, he was brought home and got a favorite treats collard greens broccoli cauliflower carrots bananas and watermelon rinds that's what a tortoise likes to eat okay the, the tortoise made it 71 feet per day 71 feet per day there you go uh quote i guess that we'll never know the full details of solomon's that's the name of the uh tortoise solomon uh, solomon's <laughs> great adventure and how he managed to elude us for elude us all for so long so that's great. All right. So he's back. I, I, I don't think it was an adventure. I think it was a, a meetup. I think the tortoises are trying to get somewhere. Probably not a big threat. I think we can handle the tortoise. However, so. this one is ongoing, an ongoing saga yeah. in Connecticut. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. An eight Still to nine. Large? Yeah. A beefalo. A beefalo. An what eight to nine hundred pound bull, which is a cross between a bison and domestic <laughs> cattle. <laughs> wow. Okay. I don't want to know the science how that works, but <laughs> does Randy Edsel have a bonus tied to the presence of beefalo in the state? The beefalo. Uh, Somebody ought to that should be like the Colorado nickname or like their their offensive line or something, right? Yeah, the beefalo. It be. Yeah. I kind of was I'm kind of rooting for this guy, even though I would absolutely grill this dude up to medium rare. Um <laughs> He escaped on August 3rd as has been taking off a trailer at a local meat processing plant in in as mm. per the Hartford Current. The animal broke free and <laughs> just made a run. He knew I ain't going in there. Just uh, like remember, we had the cows in uh, St. Louis. Same. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> you get them near the meat processing plant. They're like, uh, we outie. <laughs> I heard about this joint. The animal had not been seen for a few days. It was spotted several days ago in the woods off of Route 72 near Terryville. Uh, and then the police confronted the bull on Wednesday. I mean, these poor <laughs> cops have got a tough job. And this is police officers yeah, confronted like the bull 
As officers approached, the beefalo lowered its head and scratched at the ground, demonstrating a charge. <laughs> the cops backed off and it retreated into the woods. <laughs> oh, cops wow. are like, I ain't taking any of that smoke. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. uh, you don't want to take a charge from that one. No. They said they think it's a uh, they think it's the one. But as the police captain, Edward Benici, acknowledged, no one's gotten close enough to check. So there is a <laughs> beefalo running around Connecticut. <laughs> beefalo at large in Connecticut. That's fantastic. It's half buffalo. So it's not like the, like a cattle. Pretty lame, right? This yeah. is half buffalo, and I it, I was at uh, Yellowstone. I saw those bison, man. Oh, yeah. You do not want to mess with those guys. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. So, so do we know, like, are, are these, do these things, I mean, is the meat really good? Is it, like, is it, is it more bison? Is it more steak? Is it, is there some sort of genetic combination? What, what do we know? Do we know anything about what beefalo tastes like? Well, the cops don't want to shoot it because it, it's somebody's property, they point out. Unless it yeah, poses right. a safety risk, right. they're not going to shoot the beefalo. There's an up update 15 minutes ago. No, Current is on this, man. Wow. Current.com. Oh, yeah. Good job. They have a drone. They're using a drone mm. to hunt this this guy down. Uh, <laughs> but the, he is still loose. Uh, he's in the deep woods. This could go wow. on theoretically for months, police captain Edward Benici said. He's, he's got the he's getting a lot of pub out of this. <laughs> We will we'll be on that ongoing saga. They said the brush is so thick in that area, Connecticut could have been right on top of us and we wouldn't know it. I did not know Connecticut had that, any of those areas. Well, be careful out there, everyone. All of our Connecticut listeners, be, this is not one you want to apprehend in, it, in itself. But if you do, invite me over for a Labor Day barbecue because we're going <laughs> to gonna do all right when you got 800 pounds of beefalo. Uh, all right, that'll do it. We'll be back Thursday. For more fun with college sports, please subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening. Share us on social media. Leave us nice reviews. And uh, we'll be back with big predictions for week one. We just had week zero. Now we'll have week one of the college football season. We're kind of there, man. We're kind of there. Talk to you then. I'm Mike Lizikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. We're the hosts of Skullduggery, a podcast that not only breaks down the news, but also breaks news. We deliver authoritative analysis while drawing intriguing historical parallels from our decades of covering D.C. scandals. With our current focus on the president and his administration's handling of the coronavirus, to the 2020 elections, we interview those helping to shape the stories. So subscribe to and download Skullduggery wherever you listen to your podcasts and be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod.